Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? Good to see you guys. Man, what an awesome day in church. I am excited every Sunday. Barely, barely sleep. Excited with full of anticipation to come to church on Sundays. To be with you guys. It has nothing to do with the donuts at all. To be with you guys. To worship and just be in the presence of the Lord. And, uh, you know, we, we do have kind of short services at Joy Church, even though I preach too long many times. But we do kind of have short services because we like to leave some meat on the bone. So we want to come back next week, right? That's the strategic purpose. Although today, you know, we're trying to raise our kids to love church. They want, you know, be in church to grow in their relationship with the Lord. But um, we're taking a trip later today to Mexico. And so my daughter Penny said, uh, can we just, uh, what, I think she said to you, right? She said, can we just skip church today and just go? <laughs> no, Penny, we're going to be in church. We are the, the pastor's family. We got to be there. Uh, so they're sacrificing today, you know, being here in church. We've been in a series and we're continuing called You've Heard It Said. We're, we're talking about these revolutionary words of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount, which I think many of us have some familiarity with up to a point. But yet when you begin to apply them to your life and begin to dig into them uh, at a deeper level, uh, it's revolutionary. And so my, my big request, my big ask with a K for all of us is that we would, as we go through this series, read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 at least once per week. And just with this simple prayer, Jesus, help me to just understand what you're saying. Help, help, me, to, help me to get it. Help me to, help me to grasp this. Not to take these passages, you know, out of context and kind of apply one little verse, you know, uh, but to see what he's saying. Because what he's describing is really a revolutionary new way to be human. He's describing what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom and this incredible invitation we have to be a part of what God wants to do in our world and beyond. And so we're moving forward in that series today. Today we're talking about salt and light. Last week we talked about the Beatitudes. It's kind of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gave nine blessings. He said, turning upside down the way people think about being blessed. Being blessed meaning God is with you and for you means you're rich, you're powerful, you're influential. And Jesus said, actually, if you're poor in spirit, you're blessed. If you're meek, if you're mild, if you're merciful, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is what I call blessed. And he sort of turns it on its head. And he describes not something really that you can do. It's not a to-do list, but rather it's a to-be list. He says, this is the type of person that exists and is blessed in God's kingdom. This is kind of the, the, the way you need to be. And then Jesus goes on in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and he talks about salt and light. You know, I found in life that there really are two types of people. Uh, you've got salty people. And just nudge somebody if that's them, right? You're like, if you've ever been called, man, you're just salty, Right. And then you have sweet people, right? So some people are salty, some people are sweet, and that's an aspect of personality, and you just can determine who you are. I think most marriages, typically it's like sweet and sour, you know, like one person's sweet, one's sour. That's Bethany and I, she's sweet, I'm sour, you know, and so in that blend, uh, it, it kind of works. But then when it comes to taste and food preference, um, you've got the people that just love salt, and you have the people that are the sweet tooth, like me. Like, I am a sweet tooth, you guys. I love ice cream. Literally, I could be in the throes of hypothermia, and if someone was like, would you like some ice cream? I'd be like, yes, you know. Put it in my mouth, right? I feel so warm. You're dying. Okay, well, I like the ice cream. That's how much I like it. Did you know, can I just tell you how highly favored and blessed we are in this community? Do you want to know? We are getting a salt and straw ice cream here. I'm underwhelmed by your response, but 
Salt and straw ice cream. Just, just going to say, for an Italian who also has a sweet tooth, they have an olive oil ice cream. No, I know you laugh, but I, David, you, you laugh. But it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Anyways, we're getting one of those. I am a sweet tooth. Anybody, where are my sweet tooth at? Candy, sugar, come on, bring it on. Sugar, yes, please. Pour a little loving on me. Yeah, man, this manly can't hit the high notes. Come on. I, my dad made me listen to the Bee Gees so I can sing falsetto like a real man. And then you got the salty people. Where are the salty people at? Like chips, okay, all that. In our relationship, Bethany and I, she is salty. Like Bethany will take salt and vinegar chips over ice cream any day of the week, right? And how many of you are like that, okay? And Bethany, you know, sometimes she'll be like, hey, I'm going to make popcorn and at that point, I have to drink about a gallon of water. You know, Bethany's popcorn is so salty, it is the leading cause of dehydration in the world today. <laughs> you may have heard that the Western United States has actually been experiencing a drought for the past decade. Bethany's popcorn. That is actually why. Her popcorn literally causes the reign of Eugene to cease. You might have noticed that in, since 2013, when the Schmelzer family moved to Eugene, it has rained less. I mean, you can look this up. This is science. It's rained less, and the reason is because my wife's popcorn, because her popcorn is so salty, it changes the atmosphere. Uh, and now I, and, I, and, I, and I, I love it, but if she makes popcorn, I have to make my own, because like her popcorn, people will walk into our house, and they'll be like, there's a mummy on your couch. And I'm like, no, it's just one of the kids. It's okay. After about two days in the hot tub, they'll, they'll come back to life. They had some of mom's popcorn. It's all good. So anyways, that is the, the level... Um, but, but unfortunately, when I read the words of Jesus that we're going to go through together, what I actually see is that Jesus prefers Bethany to me. So that is the moral of the story, that Jesus really prefers it's salty. Sorry, sweet tooths. Because as he says, and we're going to dive into this in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you, speaking to his disciples and this crowd that's gathered around, but speaking to his disciples here, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He uses a second metaphor. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus kind of satisfies and solves this salty versus sweet debate, and he's pro-salt. That's Jesus. And he tells his followers, not you need to be, or you need to aspire to, or you need to give an effort towards, but he says, you are, you possess this quality. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light. And this is a critical thing that we're going to talk about today, because we're not, in a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, again, it's not a to-do list, it's a to-be list. And Jesus is describing, these are the blessed ones who are part of my kingdom. He's talking to his disciples and he says, you are salt, the salt of the earth, and you are the light. Now, one of the things I, I think that's very helpful for us, rather than to just hear this term salt of the earth and sort of take it as kind of an abstract description and we kind of get it. I mean, I've heard many sermons in church where a preacher will say, and salt does this and this, and salt does this and that. So therefore, this is what Jesus means. Well, he actually meant something pretty specifically when he said this. Uh, he it's, it's actually given to us a little bit with more clarity in Luke uh, chapter 14. Jesus is quoted by the, Luke uh, saying this, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Same words from the Sermon on the Mount. 
Then we get this little clarifying detail. It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Now you go, what does Jesus mean? Salt is not fit for the earth or for the soil, nor is it fit for the manure pile. Well, understanding the, the, the context and the culture at this time helps us to understand what Jesus means. How many of you know in Israel there's this place in between Israel and Jordan called the Dead Sea? Okay, the Dead Sea, and it's the lowest place on earth. And I, I got to go there. Mark, uh, Pastor Mark and I were there a couple years ago. Can you put that picture up? This is us. And uh, my feet actually are not dirty. Those are like water socks, in case anyone was thinking, wow, he has a problem. Uh, and Pastor Mark's feet are so nice, you know, looking. That's what Lori gets to enjoy all the time. <laughs> Anyways, we were there. And uh, we, Mark can attest to this. We're not swimming. We're giving no effort. We're just floating. Like the, it's the salt content of the Dead Sea is so high that you just float. And it's an incredible uh, experience. Go ahead and show the next picture. And there at the Dead Sea, the salt uh, it didn't look like that on the day we were there. <laughs> but uh, this is the National Geographic version of the Dead Sea. Uh, the salt just gathers on the shore and, and right there under the water, Sometimes the salt is so strong uh, that as the water evaporates, it'll sort of float on the, the, the surface of the lake. Uh, and so the salt content is, is so heavy. And this was known to the ancient Israelites and the people there. And they would gather this salt. And so everyone would have a bag of salt from the Dead Sea at their house for two specific purposes. And it was called the salt of the earth. This salt that comes from the Dead Sea is so rich in, in minerals and things that it has many properties that were known to ancient people. Uh, one of the properties is that the salt from the Dead Sea contains what is called potash. I don't know anything about gardening other than I'm married to a gardener, and that's the full extent, and I like vegetables. That's the full extent of gardening knowledge. But apparently this potash that is found in Dead Sea salt is a uh, enriching, it does something with the fertilization or the nitrogen of the soil. I'm just kind of blindly trying to hit garden-esque type terms here. And, it, and it, it causes good things to grow. So specifically fruit crops, vegetable crops, they would use the salt from the Dead Sea and they would use it for the potash that was in it and they would sprinkle it liberally into the soil when they wanted to grow vegetables or fruit. But then, and that's what Jesus means when he says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the salt of the soil, you help good things grow. But then there's another property to this salt that everyone would have in their house, the salt of the earth that they'd get from the Dead Sea. And that is that in an ancient Israelite home, there was no air conditioning, there was no running water, so there's no, there's no toilet, there's no bathroom that you can go and do your business. So what they would do is go behind the house out into the field or the courtyard or whatever. They would dig a hole, they would do their business, and they would have this bag of salt there, the salt of the earth, and they would use it to put liberally onto this manure, onto this human dung, because it would kill the bacteria. It would stop the bacteria from growing and the stench and all of that. And so when Jesus uses this word picture, he tells his disciples, not you, you're, not, you're going to become or you need to show effort to become this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. They would have this idea in their mind. Yeah, we all have this bag in our house of salt and it causes good things to grow and it stops the bad things from growing. And that is what you are as a Christian. That is what you are, not what you can become, not what you need to aspire to be. That is what you are as a Christian. You cause good things to grow and you stop bad things from growing. And when this salt, when it came to this salt, it wasn't like you would take a little sprinkle, you know, you, you did Bethany's version of popcorn amount of salt. 
It was handfuls, right? You were tossing it in the air. You were laughing as you threw the salt in, like it was a lot of salt. You put a lot in the soil to get that property of the fertilization. You put a lot in the manure pile. And so what Jesus is talking about here is something they would have understood that it wasn't just qualitative, it was quantitative. In other words, you got to put a lot of salt to get the impact and the change that you want to see. So Jesus says to them, you are the salt, you are the light. I think it's interesting because in our times, many, many times for, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we will have this sort of sadness about the world around us. And I'll hear Christians even say, well, I really hope that we rediscover our Christian principles as a nation, or I hope that we become a more Christian society. And Jesus actually says the exact opposite. He says, if you want to have a more Christian society, you need more Christians in society. You see, if we're wanting the external environment to conform to the image of Christ and, the, and God's kingdom and look more like heaven, it's not going to happen because a bunch of people get attracted to Christian ideas. It's going to happen as more people are transformed by Christian ideals from the inside out. If you want a society that more reflects heaven, it's got to have more salt content meaning more people that are following Jesus authentically from the inside out and living out Jesus' values, when it, it, in that case, it will look like Jesus' kingdom. So I want to give you today three thoughts about being salt and light. Number one, salt and light affect the environment simply by being there. Simply by being there. This is interesting because I'll hear Christians say things like this, and I've definitely said it, and I've definitely thought it. Uh, I need to start acting like a Christian. Or, hey, you need to act like a Christian. Well, let me, let me just say this. Don't act like a Christian. Be a Christian. Because when we think about it this way of, oh, I need to change my behavior in this moment to more accurately reflect how I want someone to perceive me or whatever, what we're admitting is that there is not internal transformation. There is simply behavioral modification. Like I found myself telling our kids sometimes, hey, could we not do that at the grocery store? People know I'm a pastor. I don't want you to wreck it for us. <laughs> you know, more or less saying something of that nature. Or I'll say something like, hey, we're Christians. We, Mom and dad, why don't we do such and such a thing? Well, we're Christians, you know. The reality, though, is that a person who is in love with what Jesus loves and is in pursuit of, the, of their God-given destiny they're, they're not, it's not that they're acting like that thing. They are that thing. Therefore, they make that impact in the environment. And so Jesus is telling us, hey, you don't have to try to act like salt. You, you actually are salt. When you're living out these kingdom values, when you are my follower, when you're my disciple, when it's coming from the inside out and it's real, you have this effect on culture, on society. You make good things grow and you make bad things stop. You are salt. Don't act like a Christian. Be a Christian. Real Jesus followers are salt and they are light. And the thing about salt and light is they always change the environment. This is why later we're going to talk about light and why there's a temptation to cover your light because when you are salt and you are light and you're living out these countercultural values, it's impossible to not make a difference wherever you are. It's fascinating to me that when a real Christian not when the real Slim Shady stands up, but when a real Christian <laughs> emerges into an environment, they don't even have to really speak. They don't really have to be, you know, inserting their opinions into things. It's like out of their core being, they're just making a difference in the environment because they're not pursuing the same things that the rest of culture at large is pursuing. They're not valuing the same things that people are valuing and they change the whole atmosphere. 
as we live out the countercultural values of God's kingdom, we could change any atmosphere, any environment that we are in. You change work, you change your school, you change your family. And you have inside of you the, the seed or the, the DNA of heaven. You have the Jesus culture. My dad, he, he's really into sourdough pancakes and he's he just sourdough. He just loves, he calls it catching the sourdough. I guess if you, I don't really know how this works either, but he's really into it. And I'm into the pancakes that come out of it. So it's a win-win, but he'll put out like this dough and I don't know, you put water or something and maybe I'm saying it wrong, but basically out in the air is floating sourdough starter, yeast or bacteria. Is this correct? Somebody help me out. I need like a Prairie Home Companion person to tell me I'm doing this right. Anyways, he's really excited about catching the sourdough. It's like out there in the atmosphere and he calls it a culture, right? It's a, it's a culture that begins to grow and it changes this dough. It changes this, uh, this starter, this, this, this thing. We want to have that culture of Jesus in us and out of us uh, affecting everything. And the reality is when you are following Jesus, you, you can't help but make a difference in the world around you. All right, number two, stay salty, my friends. Stay salty. You know, being different from the world around us, again, living out these countercultural values is what makes us salty. And Jesus talks about this when he says, salt that has lost its saltiness, salt that is not salty, he says this, and it sounds pretty harsh, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt that isn't salty is just white powder, get rid of it. We don't need this, it's doing nothing. And he says, once you've lost its saltiness, it's, it's uh, uh, let me go back to the verse there. How can it be made salty again? Once you've lost your saltiness, it's almost impossible to get it back. It's interesting to me that as a Christian living in culture and society, and as I live out the countercultural counter values of the kingdom, I am salty to the people around me. I am not salty in that mean sense, but I, I'm making a difference. I'm making an impact. I am light. But once you begin to embrace the values of the world around you, you lose the, the, that preservative and cause the good things to grow, help the bad things not to grow or cause them not to grow. You lose that impact. And, and old uh, school Christians will call this losing your witness or losing your testimony. It's like you've now, uh, you've now lost what makes you salty. And Jesus says, we got to be aware of this because it's really, really tough, if not impossible, to get it back once lost. Now, obviously we have the gospel, we have grace, and I believe that a person who has lost their witness can be restored to a place of saltiness, but it's not something that happens overnight. There's something about when you're following Jesus and you're living out these values that Christians should look and act and be different than the world around them. And Jesus acknowledges that when he says salt that loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. So what does this characteristic of saltiness mean? What does Jesus mean when he's saying salty salt, right? What does that look like? Well, I believe it's all described right for us in the passage preceding when Jesus goes through these, what we call Beatitudes, these nine blessings. And he describes these diametrically opposed values uh, that he calls blessed over and against what the world calls blessed. I, I don't need to go through it all because I talked about it last week and I encourage you to go back through and listen to that. But he says, blessed are you, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is giving us a contrast. It is better to be poor in spirit, meaning that you're not proud in spirit. The opposite of proud in spirit is poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means you recognize your need for God. 
You don't think of yourself as God's answer to the world. You recognize that you are a sinner who's been saved by grace as a follower of Jesus, and you depend literally every single day upon the breath of God to fill you up and give you the grace and strength to walk through each day and make a difference that you bring nothing to the table when it comes to righteousness, that we don't add, well, 5% of my goodness and 95% of Jesus. It's like 100% Jesus, 0% Jake. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And Jesus says, when you live out this poor in spirit value, when, when this is coming from the inside of you, you're against the way of the world. It's interesting to me because I see ads like every single day on Instagram and Facebook and other places that are like, hey, you need to think like a winner, dress for the job you want, not the job uh, that you have. You know, you need to show yourself successful and you need to get better self-esteem and, and get your mindset elevated. Like how many of you guys see this kind of stuff? right? And, and like, what's wrong with having more, more self-esteem? Well, n- nothing in and of itself, but wouldn't it be better if we like saw ourselves exactly as Jesus sees us rather than sort of creating a construct out of our own imagination? And, and what if instead of us becoming you know, like mentally tough and stronger and more successful and thinking like winners, what if we thought like servants and God placed us in whatever position of victory and winning he wanted us to be in and we can make a difference there without any insecurity because we didn't elevate ourselves, therefore nobody can knock us down. See, like when you embrace Jesus' countercultural values, it puts you in opposition to the way the world thinks. And so Jesus says, be poor in spirit. He says, mourn in a world that just wants to be happy and entertained. We live in a, in a world in which, as a Christian, um, when you kind of say, well, the, the party that everybody's sort of wanting to enjoy is actually creating suffering or it's, it's against God's will, um, you kind of become the Debbie Downer and people in the world sort of just want to stay medicated and, you know, live for the weekend and all that. And so a Christian kind of looks like a bummer a lot of the time when they're kind of mourning the way things are. Is this true? And then Jesus says, look, you're to be meek. That means unimportant. Don't think of yourself as somebody important. Even if you have an important role or important position, don't, don't think too much of yourself. You need to be merciful. What does it mean to be merciful? It means to show God's kindness to somebody who doesn't deserve it. That's why Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount, anybody can love people that like them and, and be nice to people that like them, but only God can love his enemies. And so you're like your Father in heaven when you love those that aren't nice to you, that don't like you. He tells us to be peacemakers. Peacemakers take themselves and they put themselves in between Hatfields and McCoys, people at war, people in, 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 in opposition to each other, and they take flack from both sides and they say, my job is to be a reconciler, to reconcile people to God and reconcile people to people. And these, these countercultural values, people would even say, you're just meddling because you're trying to make peace. Jesus says we're to be those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. That instead of hungering and thirsting for whatever thirst trap you're looking at on Instagram or t- TikTok or whatever it may be, or hungering and thirsting, only like 10% of the audience even knows what that is. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, instead of hungering and thirsting for whatever my next fix is or hungering and thirsting for that promotion or whatever that is, I'm to hunger and thirst for right standing with God and right relationship with other people. And that is to be the root motivating thing inside of me from the inside out again, countercultural, and who live according to the law of love that Jesus describes later in the Sermon on the Mount, to do unto others actively that which you would want done to you. Jesus says, this is what it means to be salty. Not doing the bare minimum, but actively doing for others what they would want done for them. 
And what happens when you are salty like this, when you live counterculturally to the values of this world, is that's why Jesus gave us this warning at the end of the Beatitudes section. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Why does Jesus have to tell us to look forward to a heavenly reward? The reason why is because we will not receive the reward of being this salty type of a person on this planet. In fact, Jesus tells us that when you live counterculturally, you can expect that not only will you not be rewarded by the world around you, but you will actually be insulted, persecuted, and attacked, but look forward to a heavenly reward. Now, I want to be clear that when Jesus says your, your, your reward's in heaven, that doesn't mean that your entire life's going to be poor and miserable and broken and all of that, because you have to take the whole Bible into context. The Bible talks about that when we follow God and we walk in wisdom, many times just walking in God's wisdom elevates your conditions. Anytime Christianity has shown up uh, in a new nation or a country, it elevates the standard of education and healthcare and prosperity and so on and so forth. And I don't have time to go into all of that. But Jesus isn't saying, hey, all my followers are going to be broke and miserable all the time. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when you live salty, you should understand that you're not going to get a reward for that behavior, though that is what you need to do on this leg of the journey. That you got to wait because you're storing up that treasure in heaven as you live out this way of life. And so the challenge for us is as believers to stay salty, to not give up that tang, to not give up that, that, that flavor that we carry, to say, God, I want to, I wanna, from the inside out, I want to bear the mark of your kingdom. I want to have that, that culture on the inside of me that I live counterculturally, not anticipating what I'm going to get for it, but because it's the right thing to do. And not even because it's the right thing to do, but because I want to be right with you. This is what you look like. This is what you are. Jesus, these are the values that come out of your heart. Therefore, if I am of you, if I am of your kingdom, if I am of your family, God, I want to live out these things. And as we stay salty, we, 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 we do, not by what we say or do, but we just do the properties of what the salt of the earth does. We help the good things to grow in our culture, in our environment, in our families, in our workplaces, and we stop the spread of evil and, and corruption. Number three, let your light shine. You ever hear that song in Sunday school? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Not you can be, sometimes you are. No, he says, you are the light of the world. Do you know that because we are the light of the world, us, Christians, disciples of Jesus, there isn't another light. If you're not shining, there's not another light that shines. If, if Joy Church, if we don't shine our light into our community, there's not a cavalry coming. It's not like if the Christians of Lane County are not shining the light of Jesus out into this community, then the community is lost in darkness. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl? Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Why does Jesus tell us that it's imperative for us to let our light shine? Because he doesn't say, let your salt salt. He says, you are the salt, you are the light. So again, it's not about effort. The reason that he has to give us a command 
to let our light shine is because in a world where your saltiness and your light makes other people uncomfortable, there's a real temptation to hide. There's a real temptation to take the blessing of the Lord and, the, and what, it, what it means to walk with Jesus and the healing and the holistic wellness that comes and the shalom, peace that comes in your life and to gather with a bunch of other Christians who look like you, think like you, act like you, vote like you and to come together and to just be comfortable and to conceal the light in, in these boxes uh, that we call churches on Sunday mornings and to not let it go out into the darkness. You know, I love the church. I love the church. I love what we do on Sundays. We come together and we're here to give God glory in worship. We're here to fellowship. We're here to grow in our relationship with Jesus. But we actually fall into the trap of Satan if, if we turn church into a place where all we do is grow rather than a place where we're here to be equipped to go. Because the reality is that we are not the church gathered, on, we're, we're the church gathered on Sunday, but we are really the church when we're going on Monday. Going into our workplace, going into our school, going to our community and serving people and loving people and shining the light of Jesus. And when you shine that light and you are living out your countercultural values, people are going to be like, turn that off because it makes them uncomfortable. Jesus talks about this later in scripture. He says, the world's going to hate you as it hated me because in they love the darkness. They, they, they don't want the light to expose what's going on. It's interesting, when we talk about light, there's a positive and a negative polarity to light. On a positive side, light reveals the right way to go. You know, light, uh, a lot of times when I get up in the morning, it's not light outside yet, and so I'll, I will think that I have the pathfinding abilities of Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea and that I can make my way through our room, you know, through the high heels and the Legos and so on and so forth to the bathroom, and I don't possess that, and I should turn the light on, but I don't, so I always hurt myself. And so when I grab my cell phone and have the, you know, forward thinking to uh, turn on the flashlight, then I can reveal the path and get where I want to go. You know what I'm talking about? That's the positive aspect of light. As followers of Jesus, we have an ability to illuminate the path for people. I think it's fascinating because I'll talk to people who don't know Jesus and they'll ask me questions. And I, not because I'm smart or I'm wise or anything like that. They'll say, well, well what, what would I do in this thing with my child? Or what would I do in this relationship? And I'll say, well, you should do this. And they're like, whoa, that's mind-blowing. And I'm like, that's just the Bible. And that's just God's wisdom. It's his light available to all of us. God's light actually can help people who don't even love God or follow God. Every single person that lives in a Western nation that's been formed by Judeo-Christian principles is ben benefits from the light of God's kingdom as it is manifested through government, political systems, and so on and so forth, whether they know it or not. And then when you go to a nation where they do not have those root principles and that light has not influenced their culture, you will find that there is so much darkness and corruption and injustice and so on and so forth. And so God's light is a positive aspect for society. And even the world will value the, the positive aspect of the light. But my friends, light also has a negative polarity, a negative aspect, which is that it reveals something that someone wished to conceal. And this is where Jesus said, you will be tempted to cover your lamp. You'll be tempted to cover your light. You'll be tempted to hide in churches. You'll be tempted to quit your job and go work with other Christians. You'll be tempted to leave that environment that I placed you in to light up because people are going to be like, turn off the light. Yeah, Can't tell you how many times just by our very existence as believers that we're offensive to people. 
You know, Bethany and I, we have the audacity, the audacity to have a closed traditional marriage with Christian values of sexuality. And our very presence is offensive to some people. Did you know that? It's offensive because if somebody wants to live a crazy sexual escapade, open, you name it and claim it or whatever you want to do, <laughs> people will say things like you're judging me or something. We're not judging you. We're just married. Like we're not judging you, <laughs> but we are. And the way we are is because our light is shining. It's like a beacon. Wah, and every time the lighthouse comes around, ah, ah, you know. <laughs> and it makes people uncomfortable. And I think it makes us uncomfortable as Christians that our life, that our lifestyle and our values would actually make someone else feel comfortable because our heart isn't to make someone feel bad. We just want to love people, but we, but we can't help the fact that when God is in you and shining out of you, and your life looks different and you're kind of salty that you look different and you act different and people want to say, no, you got to be like me so I feel justified in what I'm doing. And therefore, Jesus says, be careful. Don't cover your light. You're going to be tempted to cover your light, but you're called to do it. And he says this, and I love this. He says, let your light shine that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, we don't do good things as Christians. We don't love people, serve people, live traditional values or whatever you want to call them. We don't, we don't do good deeds to get a reward. In fact, Jesus says when you do these good deeds, you probably won't get rewarded. Why do we do the good deeds? It's for God's glory. Now, let me put some language to that that makes it a bit more accessible because God's glory sounds like, ooh, God's glory, ooh. When somebody comes to Bethany or I and says, hey, I saw Jack in class or Evie and they were, they were being nice to another kid. They were, they were doing the right thing. And I, you guys, you know, you taught them how to do that. We go, oh man, that's the best compliment you can give us as a parent. When our children live out the values that we've sought to instill in them and they are exhibiting the characteristics that we wish to have them exhibit as a representation of our family name, that brings glory to our family. How many of you parents, when your kids succeed and they are taking on the character that you wish them to have, not the negative stuff, but the good stuff, that it actually bows your chest out with pride, right? In a good way, you, you are given glory by your children looking like you or looking like you in the positive sense. And in the same way, when the world looks at you and says, hey, I see you and I see your paternity, I see your parentage, I see that you belong to God. Uh, because of the way you're acting that's different. You, you look like you're from a different family. That is what it means when Jesus is saying that your good deeds will give God glory. What, what people are saying is they're recognizing that you're God's kids. And God's kids act different than the kids of this world. God's family acts different than the family of this world. In our neighborhood, we have different um, Strata, strata of people that live around us. Some of them are Christians. They have stable lives, you know, mom and dad together and sort of, you know, the, 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 the normal picture. Then we have broken families. You know, we have a drug house on our, on our street, you know, and we don't go down there. But anyways, um, I try to shine light from afar. You know what I mean? <laughs> drugs are bad. They're still bad today. You know, stop selling drugs on our street. You know, it's the lighthouse. Anyways. Laughing at the pastor's jokes is good. You know, that's a good one. If you didn't know what I was doing, that was the lighthouse in case anyone was, I wasn't dancing. Um, on our street, we have a, a broken family and 
there's a, a kid that our, our kids play with, and they're always reflecting on the differences. Like, this kid does this, or he says this, or whatever. And, and, and we, we, it opens up great conversations for us. And we'll say, well, you know, yeah, that, he's doing this because of some of the things in his life. And so maybe he reacts in anger to our kids at whatever they're doing. And one of our kids was getting mad and telling him, you got to go home and was mad. And I said, hey, or actually Bethany did it. I'm not the teacher of the kids. She is, you know, I, I just teach him how to speak English poorly and play video games. But mom is helping him grow like Jesus. And uh, she said, well, we're Christians. We, we don't respond that way. We're, we're, we're different. Not saying we're superior. So this is a key thing here. We're better than them, so we do things differently. That's not at all the heart of this. The heart is we're graced by God to have a privileged position in his family. And because we're God's kids and we wear that name on our life, the name of Jesus on our life, we, we have the, the ability to act in love to those who aren't acting loving towards us. And Jesus says, let your good deeds shine before others that they may give glory to your Father in heaven. It has everything to do with people seeing that you're God's kids and that God's kids act differently. They're salty and they act counterculturally. Their values are different than the world around them. They're light in the darkness. The question that we can ask is this, as a follower of Jesus, am I living in a way that's bringing glory to God? People see my life do they recognize a difference? Is there saltiness there? Is there a light that's shining? doesn't mean there's something I need to do. It just means if, if it's not there, then what I should say is, Lord, wh wh why am I missing that characteristic? Help me to live a life that brings glory to you. And all we do to get salty is to lean into Jesus because as the Holy Spirit works into your heart, he will begin to shape and change that which you love, that which you hate. You want that to more accurately reflect God's heart. And as you do so, you will be, you are salt and light. Now, here's the deal. In this room today, uh, I don't want to brag about you too much, but like these are some of the best people that I've ever met. In this room today are people that would literally give you the shirt off their back. In this room sitting here today are people that will love you. you, you they'll, they'll give. They're generous. They're compassionate. They're not judgmental jerks. They're kind. There are people in this room that will listen to you as you go through hard things. And like you know who you are. All of you people are amazing. Uh, this, this church is full of salt and light. Not because we're doing stuff, but because we are that because of Jesus. And our world and our city specifically needs this salt and this light to be among them. Not saying or doing anything in particular or attempting to act like Christians. Just being in love with Jesus and letting those values shine and salt the world around us. That's all I have for you today. Let's bow our heads and pray. Jesus. We lean into your words today. I pray that we would be transformed. God, we wouldn't be like the man in the book of James who looks into a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. But we would look at your words as a mirror and say, Lord, where I fall short, where I don't reflect what I see there, help me to grow. Help me to be more like you. Jesus, I thank you for this incredible group of people. This is salt. This is light. There's so much love. There's so much generosity, so much grace here. And I pray, Lord, that this work that you've done in us as your kids, as your people, that it would be the salt and be the light in this community, that we would just with our presence help the good things grow, that we'd feed the positive, feed mercy, feed those that are, that are uh, hungry, that, Lord, we would feed the good things and they would grow in our society, in our city, and that, Lord, our presence would stop the corruption and the moral rot 
and the, and the violence and, and all of the negative things that come from the kingdoms of this world, that, Lord, we would be ambassadors and emissaries of your kingdom and that by our very presence, the atmosphere would be changed. There would be salt and light present in every school and every workplace. There would be salt and light present in every family, not because of what we do, but because of who we are, who we are made new in you. Jesus, we receive your word today. We respond to it and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Real quick, would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want to give you an opportunity. If you're here today, you say, Jake, I'm not a follower of Jesus, so I'm not salt and light. I don't have a relationship with God. I have not placed my faith in Jesus, and I, and I want to. I want to follow him. I want him to save me of my sins. Would you just raise your hand so I can see? Nobody's looking at you. I just want to just wanna see. Would you raise your hand so I can see? Uh, Pastor Jake, I want to follow Jesus. Anybody here today? And if that's you, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. If that's you today and all of us together, we're going to pray this prayer as the start of our journey following the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you for paying for my sins when you gave your life at the cross. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I pray for the grace to follow you every day of my life as you work in my life and transform me into the kind of person that you created me to be. I give you my life and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.